0: This is from a song of the great Indian mystic Kabir. Have you heard the music deep inside your own house? Suppose you scrub your ethical skin until it shines, but inside of you there is no music. Then what? The scholar pours over words and points out this or that but if his chest is not soaked with love then what? The yogi comes along in his famous orange robe but if inside he is colorless then what? Tonight I'll talk about joy, appreciation and sympathetic joy. Spiritual practice is often seen as an effort towards improved ethical conduct, towards more spiritual knowledge, deeper concentration and self-improvement. And with that, sometimes quite high demands towards ourselves begin to shape our inner atmosphere. Yet we really practice because we hope to bring more cheerfulness, to bring fulfillment and joy into our life. So that's and Kabir asks us, when we live adhering to a correct ethical conduct, but within we are dry and without music, what's that good for? When we have great knowledge of the teachings and the practice, but our heart is without love, then what's the point? When we do all the right religious and dharmic things, but in the depth of our soul we're colorless, then why bother? The path of self-realization, in spite of discipline and great effort, does not have to be gray and bland, but can bring light, color and aliveness into our heart and our daily life. Rumi goes even as far as to suggest that the point of practice is to keep joy in our hearts even at times of sorrow. That sounds like an art. So let's first look at the different kinds of mind state such as pleasure and joy. <clears throat> Mind says that we're not usually distinguish in our lives. Erich Fromm, for example, distinguishes between pleasure as a short time high and joy as a feeling one experiences on the path to human self realization. For from joy as a life principle stands in contrast to Pleasure as a life principle. Pleasure being the hallmark or the characteristic of consumer society. I find it interesting to learn to tell the two apart. We quite often mix them up or can't really tell which one is what. Pleasure depends on getting wished for, outer or just sense objects and situations joy arises out of our own minds so they're quite different from each other means that pleasant experience does not necessarily create joy or just a kind of fleeting momentary joy Ajahn on that one picture over there is a Ursula's he goes as far as to say to look for true happiness and joy in sense experience is like looking for a hot meal in the refrigerator. That's putting it quite strongly. The Buddhist psychology makes the following distinction which I find interesting. Joy, on one hand, is a mental factor. Pleasantness is an experience. Joy is a mental factor. Pleasantness is an experience. It's a feeling tone. It's a Vedana. And here's what it means. That's relevant, I feel. Joy can be cultivated. We can cultivate joy. Pleasant experience comes and goes simply independence of causes and circumstances. We cannot cultivate pleasure. We would, I'm sure, you know. It doesn't work. We have to get the right sense hit and then it's pleasant and then it's gone again. Joy. We can develop. We can acquire a pleasant object, a pleasant experience if you're lucky. We can't cultivate it. Within different joys, because that's what we want to look at here, we have um, those who are ethically or karmically wholesome, those who are unwholesome, and those who are neutral. Rejoicing in someone's happiness or goodness, as in the case of a mutita, sympathetic joy, would be an ethical, wholesome joy. We rejoice in the goodness. Rejoicing in the bad fortune of someone, which one may do sometimes, as for example in maliciousness or glee, in in schadenfreude, would be uh, obviously uh, unwholesome joy. Being happy about the day's weather is probably uh, ethically neutral joy, I imagine. Maybe it's even just a pleasure. And when we talk about the cultivation of joy, here we mean, of course, karmically or ethically positive or wholesome joy. In its positive, wholesome aspect, joy is an important and powerful quality on the path to the end of suffering, on the path to happiness and to liberation. For one, joy is a factor of absorption, or, or uh, I called it a concentration factor the other day. It means joy is a substantial aspect of a collected, calm and wakeful mind and just to remind you along with applied attention, making contact with sustained attention, staying with it, with happiness and then one point point as those five. Joy is also a so called factor of awakening, which mean it has to be present in heart and mind for deep liberating insight to arise. It's interesting to hear. Joy is one of the seven factors that has to be there for the mind to deeply open. It has to be accompanied and in a balanced way by mindfulness, investigation, right effort, calm, collectedness and equanimity. Those seven are what needs to be present for awakening to be possible. So much about the technical side. Now I just want to look at what joy might be and how it can be brought about. It's perhaps what Angelus Silesius refers to in his famous poem. He wrote it in German and it rhymes in German so I read it first in German then I'll translate it. Ich komme, ich weiß nicht woher. Ich bin, ich weiß nicht wer. Ich sterb, ich weiß nicht wann. Ich gehe, ich weiß nicht wohin. Mich wundert's, dass ich so fröhlich bin. I come, I don't know from where, I am, I don't know who, I die, I don't know when, I go, I don't know where to. I'm so surprised that I'm so joyful. It's not the same when it doesn't rhyme, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Then I'd like to read uh, a few verses connected to nature <clears throat> written by uh, Mahakasapa is one of the main of the most important disciples of the buddha and uh, what's interesting is he was known as a very strict and very austere ascetic you know he's sort of the prototype of the ascetic monk <clears throat> and it comes as quite a surprise to hear his verses expressing love and enthusiasm for nature, for nature's beauty. He says, where some are exhausted, climbing the rocks, there, Kasapa, the awakened one, climbs mindful, alert and strengthened by his mental powers. Returning from his alms rounds, Climbing at peak, Kasapa, absorbed in meditation, free from clinging, his duty done, unbound. And he goes on. This clearly someone who is liberated. He goes on. Strung with garlands of Kareri flowers, this patch of earth delights the mind. The lovely calls of elephants sound This rocky cracks refresh me so. The shimmering hue of of darkening clouds, Cool waters and pure streams flowing, Covered by Indra's ladybugs, This rocky cracks refresh me so. Uncrowded by village folk, But visited by herds of deer, Covered with moist carpets of moss, these rocky cracks refresh me so. There's not so much joy for me in the music of a five-piece band as there is when my mind is at one seeing the Dhamma all right. So, great renunciation and discipline and joy can go together. Next, I'd like to list specific practice aspects through which joy can be encouraged and supported. Aspects like, or areas like, generosity, gratefulness, forgiveness, playfulness and humor, loving kindness, sympathetic joy, of course, bodhisattva practice. The so a few others i like just to mention shortly, like ethical conduct, living uh, ethical clear life, brings lightness, ease and joy in the mind and heart. Also, collectedness, as you may know, collectedness, samadhi, about which much has been said and I won't say more, and uh, some of you also have seen how, in fact, it can create joy, even independently of the object one is focusing on. There is joy in renunciation and letting go, as uh, Yuka has been talking about two nights ago. Of course, <clears throat> there is bodhisattva practice, a source of great joy. So, Generosity. <clears throat> From generosity, joy arises. When we give, when we're generous, we feel connected to those we give to. If we give actually out of generosity and not out of bad, bad conscience or because we think we should or because we think it looks good or we want to impress. Whether it's material things we give or supportive and helpful words, whether it's money or time or attention. When we give, we feel rich and joyful. Generosity is not simply a human virtue, but it is also seen as a paramita, one of the perfections bodhisattvas cultivate and Buddhas have realized, have accomplished, have completed. Generosity weakens and overcomes desire, attachment, grasping and stinginess, and therefore is a very liberating and unburdening quality of the heart. We're more at ease, we're more joyful, and our life becomes more meaningful and rich. I mean, you can feel it, it, the mode we're in when we're in need, you know, I need, I'm sort of poor because I don't have what I need. That's the, the mode. And the other way, when you're generous, you know, it feels the other way round, you know. You're rich because you have things to give independently of what we have. Lao Tzu said, The wise don't accumulate things but the more they do for others the more meaningful their life becomes and the more they give others the greater is their abundance and with it their joy. So there's generosity there's gratitude or gratefulness that's another source of joy. Celia Thaxter wrote, there shall be eternal summer in the grateful heart. Sounds good, but then later I thought it sounds good. Doesn't so, sound so good anymore in times of uh, climate change. Suddenly <laughs> we don't want anymore <laughs> eternal summer. We can be grateful for and rejoice in all the good things which happen to us in life. This is by David Steinler Rost, the Austrian-American monk and poet and activist. It's a wonderful person. It's on joy and gratefulness. It says, ordinary happiness depends on happenstance. That's glückliche zufälle. Joy is that extraordinary happiness that is independent of what happens to us. Good luck can make us happy, but it cannot give us lasting joy. The root of joy is gratefulness. We tend to misunderstand the link between joy and gratefulness. We notice that joyful people are grateful. And suppose that they are grateful for their joy. But the reverse is true. Their joy springs from gratefulness. If one has all the good luck in the world but takes it for granted, it will not give one joy. Yet even bad luck will give joy to those who manage to be grateful for it. We hold the key to lasting happiness in our own hands. For it is not joy that makes us grateful, it is gratitude that makes us joyful. And uh, I know uh, David Steindl asked only a little bit. I met him a few times, maybe spent a few hours with him. He's a really joyful person. He's also a renunciate, he's a, a Christian monk. The following shows that we could even be grateful for misfortune and difficulties if we train ourselves in this way. hohe schule, We can be grateful for not knowing everything because it gives us the opportunity to learn. We can be grateful for difficult times. In these times, We can grow inwardly. We can be grateful for our limitations since they give us a chance to make progress. We can be grateful for each new challenge because they strengthen our character. We can be grateful for our mistakes since they provide us with valuable lessons. Though it's easier to be grateful for the pleasant and good things, it's those who are also grateful for setbacks and mistakes who have a rich and fulfilled life. Gratefulness can transform what is negative into what is positive. If we find a way to be grateful for our problems, they become blessings. If we can be grateful for these blessings, this can cause great joy. To arise in us. There's generosity. There's gratefulness. <clears throat> Forgiveness. To be able to forgive is joyful. It's a kind of gift. Forgiveness. vergebung, Same. Whatever grudge we hold against someone burdens our shoulders and weighs on our heart. Here's a story by Derek Lynn. It's called The Tao of Forgiveness. One day, the sage asked the disciple, to think of all the people who he was holding a grudge against and groll or misgunst or nachtragen, especially those he could not forgive. He had to inscribe the name of each of them on a potato, put it in a sack and carry it around the sack for a week. That was the job. <clears throat> Carrying the sack was not particularly difficult, but after a while it became more of a burden. It began to get in the way and it seemed to require more effort to carry. After a few days, the potatoes began to rot. So in addition to the weight, there was a disgusting smell. Once the week was over, the sage inquired how things had been. The disciples said, When we are unable to forgive others, we carry negative feelings with us, much like the potatoes. They become a burden to us and after a while begin to fester and stifle our well-being. We can only lighten the burden by forgiving. I have decided to forgive all my transgressors even though it requires much effort and I have to be willing to let go again and again and again. The Master smiled, then she said, Very well then. You can remove all the potatoes now. Or were there any more people who transgressed against you recently or today? The disciple felt panic when he realized this empty sack was about to get filled up again. Then he asked, But Master, if the potatoes are negative feelings, what then is the sack? The sack is that which allows to hold on to the negativity. It is something within us that makes us dwell on feeling offended. It is our inflated sense of self-importance, our identification with and our grasping of it. Self. I. When we let go of the sack, then the things that people do or say against us no longer seem to be much of a problem. In that case we won't have any names to inscribe on potatoes, no more weight to carry around and no more bad smells that can stifle our joy. The Tao of forgiveness is the conscious decision to not just remove a few potatoes but to relinquish the entire sack. In this way the innate qualities of the heart will shine unhindered, kindness, generosity and joy. That's Derek Lynn. So giving, gratefulness, forgiving. An inexhaustible source of cheerfulness and joy is humor, I find. Not so much the humor at the expense of others, which is quite funny sometimes too. but the laughing or for at least smiling about ourselves, our own importance, our personal difficulties and dramas. When we are ready and willing to not take ourselves too seriously and to smile about our fate, cheerfulness and joy appear where otherwise resentment or worry might be present. So humor is really Enjoyable. Equally enjoyable is a playful approach to oneself and to life. Some people do surprisingly great approaching practice in a grim and dogged way, believing this even to be virtuous. Sometimes, strongly enough, we even prefer worry and concern over being happy. You know, we could be actually happy, but it's let's worry. It's an an illustration. I don't know if it works in English again. It's Swiss. A man said to his colleague, I'm worried that my wife might be unfaithful. The colleague inquires, Are there any indications for this? the man replies, no, none at all. It's this uncertainty that drives me insane. <laughs> so why be cheerful and happy when we can be worried and miserable? I think it's it sounds stupid, but it's interesting to look. Maybe sometimes we do that. At times we may believe that playful and light equals a lack of discipline or earnestness. while in fact, the ideal combination of right effort is cheerful and earnest, at ease and disciplined. That's what allows for clarity, for depth and for joy. And they go very well together. So giving, gratefulness, forgiveness, playfulness. Metta, loving kindness, is an ideal breeding ground for joy. When we manage to put the far so-called far enemies of metta, which is annoyance and ill will and hatred, out of action and manage, not to get caught in its near enemies, desire and attachment, then our minds will abide more frequently in a sense of connectedness and joy. To train our mind in a way that lets goodwill and kindness become more and more our second nature also means that the usual thoughts of comparing, of judging and condemning give way to an inner atmosphere of openness and joy. It's so much lighter to hang in with that kind of way of being than with comparing, judging, condemning and all the rest. And the same is true for sympathetic joy, for Mudita. i like to quote a few verses by Shantideva, which convey this inner mood. I just realized I mixed it up a little, but never mind. They're all good qualities. (laughs) He says, Gladly do I rejoice in the virtue that (coughs) relieves the misery of all those in unfortunate states. Gladly I do rejoice in the virtue that relieves the misery of all those in unfortunate states and that places those with suffering in happiness, I rejoice in that gathering of virtue that is the cause for awakening. I rejoice in the final freedom of beings from the cycle of suffering. I rejoice in the awakening of the Buddhas and in the stages of realization of the Bodhisattvas. And with gladness I rejoice in the wholesome wish of Bodhicitta, of great compassion, as deep and as wide as the ocean, wishing for all beings to be happy and rejoicing in their beneficial deeds. There are countless opportunities to rejoice in the success, in the well-being, in the happiness of sentient beings. Instead of getting drawn into envy or jealousy, It's mentioned the altruistic motivation or the practice of the bodhisattvas, bodhicitta. It's the decision to, or the determination to give up self-centeredness as much as we can and to aspire to the highest realization for the welfare of all of life. So the practice isn't so much for oneself anymore, but for the welfare of many. When we care for the welfare of others out of genuine connectedness and compassion, our own problems and suffering become less important. We stop getting in our own way and life gets simpler, lighter and happier within. Mark Twain saw this when he wrote, The best way to make oneself happy is to try to make others happy. Me again a beautiful example of this is the Dalai Lama. In spite of the extremely difficult predicament he and his people have been in, are in, he's someone with a very tangible and quite contagious sense of joy. And I think his joy comes mostly from his compassionate aspirations, which are expressed in the following verse which is by Shantideva again, which he, uh, the Dalai Lama, declared to be one of his most important verses, statements. It says, For as long as space lasts, and for as long as living beings remain, until then, may I too abide, devoted to dispelling the suffering of the world. There's no limit, no time limit, no limit of beings. A few more words on Mudita, which was supposed to go before. It's the specific uh, kind of joy that arises from appreciating goodness, well-being, happiness and success in beings, ourselves and others, of course. It's the third aspect of boundless benevolence or of the Brahma Viharas, sympathetic joy or mudita. If you practice those Brahma Viharas, you do metta, then what we do now, karuna, compassion, and then sympathetic joy, and then Equanimity, I think Carol spoke about it. Sharon Salzberg says, Sympathetic joy is the realization that others' happiness is inseparable from our own. We rejoice in the joy of others and are not threatened by another's success. It's the benevolent wish that arises in us when we see the happiness the well-being, the success and the wholesome in others with openness and care. And it's the wish that this may continue and last. It's strange that we're so often drawn to the unwholesome habits of mind, even though we know how much more agreeable and helpful the wholesome ones are. I guess that's why Rumi asks in one of his famous verses. When you go to a garden, do you look at thorns or at flowers? Spend more time with roses and jasmine. We can integrate Buddha practice into our daily practice. I don't want to speak about how one does it formally. It's very similar to karuna, but that's not the point right now. In a way, it's one of the spiritual practices which takes the least effort and is the most fun. I think, you know, in my mind, generosity is one. You don't have to do samadhi first, you don't have to sit and walk and do all this stuff. You know, you can just be generous. Any time, any moment, there's always somebody you know, has use of something we have, time or, you know, friendship or or attention or whatever. It's easy. And in, it's similar with mudita, but I think uh, we're much less in the habit with mudita. It's even easier with uh, compassion. You see somebody suffering in our daily life, it's much easier to move that way than when we see them successful and happy. Doing really well, but there are always people around us who are lucky. How well, we could feel muditā! Always people around us who have wholesome, positive qualities, which we can tune in and rejoice in. There's always people around us who act or speak in wholesome ways, or who simply are in good spirits or are successful all opportunities for sympathetic joy so that's what I mean it easy but it takes looking in a different way I find that difficult because it's somehow to some extent counterintuitive except I imagine with a Children and grandchildren I hear especially with grandchildren it's supposed to be very easy Wolfgang tells me <laughs> so sympathetic joy to conclude the part on Mudita some final uh, advertising scientists of the University of California in LA report They researched uh, sympathetic joy, I guess. What destroys relationships between partners and spouses is not the jealousies, the money, the quarrels. More important are the reaction or responses when the partner feels really good. Those who don't care for the partner's moments of happiness and success Those who don't rejoice in the partner's pride for some achievement or for a promotion makes a mistake. The scientists report that more than anything, it's the reaction towards the triumphs and successes of the other that decides whether a relationship has a future or not. To celebrate the luck of the other as if it were one's own, Gives the partner a tremendous emotional uplift. To play down the news or to depreciate them may lead to a permanent cooling down. So Art Aaron of Stony Brook University in New York concludes, When something positive happens to one's partner, it's a perfect opportunity to strengthen the relationships. I'm sure this principle can be applied to all human relationships not just to partnerships. Interesting, interesting. Makes sense. To close, I want to read from the Mangala Sutta. It's a discourse by the Buddha on blessings. It's on what is Valuable and beneficial in life. It's a a whole list it goes through. And many of the qualities we've seen before are mentioned as special blessings. And then it goes on to the end of it. The greatest blessings are to be content and grateful to hear the Dharma or the Dhamma at the right time. To deeply understand the noble truth of suffering and its end, to realize liberation, the unconditioned, this is the highest blessing. Heart and mind unshaken by worldly states, sorrowless, stainless and secure, this is the highest blessing. Those who live in this way are everywhere unshakable and find well-being everywhere, theirs is the highest blessing.